I think almost every entrepreneur has this moment. You kind of step off the cliff. (laughs) And for me, that kind of off the cliff moment was after I'd been in as a consultant for 14 years, I was a deep subject matter expert in the Medicare programs and the Medicaid programs. But I realized, I just had, I just realized I didn't really understand it as well as I thought I did because all of a sudden, all my friends and family and neighbors and, you know, coming to me and asking me for advice or help. And, you know, I just didn't really understand how the policy and even the business operations were translating down to the experience of the patient and the caregiver. Like, I just was shocked. Like, I just, I had a mental model of how I thought the healthcare system worked for older adults. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. I'm so excited to introduce my guest today because she's a real political maverick as well as an incredible business leader. Anne Tomlinson started her career in government working as a healthcare advisor to the one and only Congressman John Lewis. Today, she is the founder and CEO of ATI Advisory and the founder of Daughterhood. Both organizations aim to address aging and disability issues in our country. Unfortunately, there are a lot of issues. In this episode, Anne walks us through the scope of the problem, but she also talks about a lot of solutions. And some of these solutions is already built. Here's our conversation. Well, welcome, Anne. Thanks for joining me this afternoon. Sure, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you. I felt like you have so much of experience from being in the politics or the policy making all the way now to where you are in the not for profit and the for profit side of the world. And uh, maybe you can share with us a little bit about your journey and how you get interested in the healthcare space and why and what took you what took you here. Yeah, that's wow. Yeah, so you know I. I didn't graduate from college with this idea that I would become a health policy expert. <laughs> you know, back in the 80s, when I graduated, that wasn't a thing. You know, there are kids today, right, getting their master's or their undergraduate in policy and global health and things. We didn't have any of that. So, I mean, there's public health or being a doctor. So, but so I um I was really interested in social sciences though, and um and I honestly had no idea what I wanted to do. I always tell people our interns, and I just always try to say like, if you're in college and you don't know what you're gonna do, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. <laughs> it will all work out. But I I I moved to Washington D.C. because I have some friends here. And they said, you should just come to Washington, D.C. It's so much fun. So um, 
I just got really lucky because I my first job was in an office, a member of Congress, and uh, working as his receptionist. So my first job was answering the phone, and I just got lucky because eventually there was an opening in his on his analyst team for somebody to do healthcare, which they gave healthcare to the most junior person because at the time it wasn't a very big deal. <laughs> so like the, the really experienced analysts were doing like transportation and environment and like defense and the healthcare was my, I got to do healthcare. Well, I can't explain what happened exactly next, except that it just, everything just clicked for me. I just, it's, I found it to be just a really interesting sort of, it it touches your heart because it's about people's personal lives. And then, but also it's a puzzle. You know, I started, it was like, there's a you know, we were talking at the time about national health care back way back, you know, is this Hillary Clinton and, you know, all of these different proposals and how they would work. And I just, I don't I just was like, this is cool. <laughs> I just liked it. Analytically, it was interesting. And so, um, so I kind of grabbed onto it and little by little, you know, over time, you start to build your expertise, just working on one project after another, one thing after another over a long, it takes a long time, you know, you don't. So I went to graduate school and I did some health services research. So I learned how to do that, which is important. And then I went back into government um, at the White House Office of Management and Budget. And that was and then I got to work on these programs even more in really, really a lot of depth. And that laid the groundwork. So like that was it. Healthcare, I was, you know, I was hooked. It was like uh, from the very beginning, I say, mm-hmm. just spoke to me. Yeah. And I think I think that's oftentimes when you feel, uh, I, I can relate to it. I feel that the personal part of it that impact a lot of people's life. Uh you know, easier to understand, I think. I mean, there's so many other areas that is always impacting other people's life, but healthcare, the connection is a bit more straightforward. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so walk through for us in terms of, I, I never worked for a, a congressman, like being especially in a healthcare advisor when you started as a receptionist and then go like, okay, I'm going to have to do something in healthcare. What was that like? And what do you have to accomplish and deliver at that time? And how has that changed now when you see when somebody work in a congressman oh. office uh, in trying trying to do healthcare policy? Yeah. You know, I actually think it's the same. You know, I mean, we, um, maybe the, it's actually the scary thing is how much hasn't changed. You know, so that, you know, we haven't really made that much progress. Um, I guess, you know, the thing about being an an advisor to one person who's a politician and they represent people is that your job 
is really always to think about what does what is what is right for my boss what is right for this politician representing these people so you know like you know there's a really big center for aging in the district and they need funding and so we better figure out how we're going to get funding you know so just i think back then and even today you're just always thinking about what are the needs of the people that this member of Congress represents, whether they're Republican, it doesn't even really matter. Republican, Democrat, like people have the same needs. And that's the funny thing a lot of people don't realize is like, you know, it was really friendly back then. Like you just, like I met my husband, he was in a Republican office. I was in a Democratic office. Like you didn't, everybody's kind of working on the same things just from different angles. And I think that's more the same than you would imagine even today, you know, you get past all of the bluster and all of the ugly politics and there's still people just working to solve problems. Um, And then you just have to, you have to be willing to, what I've learned over time is that what you really need to be able to do in that environment and especially if you're going to be working on the programs like at, at OMB is you really have to be willing to learn your program at its very source. So I'm not a lawyer and you don't have to be a lawyer, but you have to start with like the policy starts often in the statute. Mm-hmm. You have to read the law and then you have to read how the agency interpreted the law. And then you have to read how the agency guides p- providers and everybody around, you know, all of these pieces of documentation from the government are your, that's your source mm. of truth. And if you can't just go read somebody else's report and think you know it. You have to go to the source. And that I was trained to go to the source. And so that was really important. And I think just really always remembering in the congressman's office, you're representing the congressman. Like you can't, and even at OMB, like you, your own opinion is not important. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's the congressman or it's the president or it's the, you know, it's the government. Like you, your own person is not important. And if you try to be like an advocate in those roles, you do a disservice Mm. to the role. And it wasn't until like out of government, you know, that I started to be able to kind of have my own voice, you know, and my own um, point of view Mm. and to develop insights and things Mm. like, which I love doing. But when you're in government, and you, especially when you're young, you don't have a right to an opinion yet. <laughs> you have to earn it. <laughs> Just the facts, right? Just the facts. That's that. That's the thing to master at that at that level, and um, and really serving the person that you're serving, and being humble. And that was hard for me, but like I I got it beat out of me. I was like, okay, I get it. I this is not about me. Uh Um, 
And that was a good maturing. I mature, you know, it's a maturing, a very fast process of growing up, you know, right after college. In a way, you kind of force you to listen more because yeah. they they don't want your opinion as much. <laughs> no, they just want you to know what you they need to know when they need to. Like, you just have to be prepared. You could get asked anything, anytime. Mm-hmm. So whenever you're not being asked something, you better be studying. <laughs> like, you don't know. You could get a call like, what's? Going, why am I, why am I, there's somebody in my office complaining about mm-hmm. something. What, what's the deal, you know, and you have to know. Mm-hmm. So that's nerve wracking. You get a stomach ache. <laughs> yeah. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. So you mentioned about, you know, policies being created, the congressman and you're serving for John Lewis, uh, from uh, the late John Lewis. And there's so many different needs. There's so many different, you know, point of view within the, the constituent. And how do you pick what's the right one? Is that based on what his insight or because that could be somebody who speak the loudest? Yes. Yes. Usually that's what it is. You know, they're just, um, politics really matters at that level. So, you know, the, who are the big supporters and, you know, donations matter. So, you know, um, trying to think of like a good example, Coca-Cola is in Atlanta. (laughs) Mr. Lewis represented Coca-Cola, right? So, you know, that's, like we have to take that into consideration because it's a big employer and um, a big national company in Atlanta, you know. So I remember sort of the, um, uh, I'm trying, so it's been a while. And so now I'm racking my brain to think of some of the, oh, like la- like labor. So, you know, Mr. Lewis was very passionate about labor, the labor movement and, and, and you know, the labor movement supported the civil rights movement so, you know, if there were unions that come to the office, like he was always, yay, you, you know, and everybody would meet and there's a big, then the unions really supported him and they got out the vote and like he supported them. And so, so, you know, they, they, um, if something was important to them, you know, we really paid attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there's just some things just politically, you know, Mr. Lewis was just like, you know, very, just what you would expect, very, very socially liberal, very, um, you know, into public programs. And um, so we kind of knew where he stood. Mm-hmm. There are other members of Congress who were more middle of the road and it would have been harder, but this was pretty, this was always pretty clear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I was thinking about the, being in Coca-Cola and the healthcare, and I'm just thinking about, you know, Coca-Cola selling something that's probably not so healthy. How do you navigate that? <laughs> well, you know what? Here's the funny thing. I mean, so when I will, I'm going to, um, 
punt on the answer here because I it was so long ago and we didn't really, I mean, we knew sodas weren't good, but we weren't, it wasn't like it is now where we're like, ah, and honestly, this is the funniest thing. So uh, Coca-Cola would provide um, Coca-Cola products for our office to give out to constituents for free. So they would come in and we'd say, hey, do you want a Coke? And, you know, everybody's from Atlanta and they're like, yay, Coca-Cola. So I must have had, I think I drank like 10 Diet Cokes a day in that office. <laughs> and now I wouldn't, now, and now I'm like, I don't, you know, ooh, I'm drinking, I'm drinking water and I'm too old to drink Diet Cokes and Cokes. But, uh, but yeah, I had a very bad Diet Coke habit. <laughs> Yeah, but Coca-Cola now also sells bottled water, so they have more yeah, options yeah. too. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, so I, I was just thinking um, about the whole healthcare policy. How is that, you know, influenced sometimes with based on certain story that was told by somebody who is so passionate that can change people's mind, and then but maybe it's affecting smaller number of people rather than the larger. I mean, like the balance that you have to go through. Yeah, no, it could absolutely happen. You know, Mr. Lewis was in favor of universal health care long before it was cool, you know, (laughs) long before Bernie Sanders or, you know, AOC or anybody, Mr. Lewis was for universal health care. So, and he would, so he would really, you know, he really resonated with a lot of the stories of his constituents who couldn't get access to health care. And we did a big town hall meeting we brought lots of people out to tell their stories. And, and then sometimes it'd be just one individual story, like where somebody can't get, there's something that's not working. And then we have caseworkers who come in and try to solve the individual problems, like um, in healthcare and other ways, like, you know, like can't, my social security check won't come or, you know, there's some problem. And, and so lots of, lots of caseworkers to help help people with those kinds of things, but absolutely. So individual stories make a huge difference. The thing is, Mr. Lewis was on the healthcare committee. So he was on the ways and means committee, the health subcommittee, but I was very junior, right? So there's a whole staff of experts, very senior level people who work for the committee. Now they're the ones who are really making the decisions. Mm. You know, so like if something was very important, so my job a lot of the times was to know, okay, Mr. Lewis, the committee hearing is coming up. Here's what they're going to be talking about. I would prepare him, give him some questions. We would talk about what he wanted to know or say or do, or if he had a strong view, then I would tell the committee staff, you know, that, that, that was my job. You know, you're not he was a junior member of that subcommittee, right? So like the people who are really in charge are the chairman and the staff. And so, you know, I, I personally didn't have any influence. (laughs) I mean, really at all. And Mr. Lewis didn't have a lot at the time because he was still pretty new. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I think, I think over time he probably had more, but, yeah. yeah, I had a lot more influence in my role at the Office of Management and Budget. Like that was, that was a much more, that was a very substantive role where, you know, my job was to uh, be, resp- I, we were as a team responsible for putting the president's budget together every year. And 
<laughs> that and working with the political officials in the White House. And that was a, you know, a really, um, you could really influence the way things would mm-hmm. go from that point of view. Based on your uh, ability to oversee more like the broad landscape rather than just a silo of thing to balance everything else. Yeah. Way. Yeah. You're, yeah. You're and you're, you know, the office of management budget plays this role in the government where all of the other agencies have to come up through it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we had a lot of control over what the department of health and human services did. Mm-hmm. It had to come through these like, you know, 28 year old analysts to get, to get their budget done. And so, um, Looking back, you know, talking about sort of mistakes that people like, I, I think um, we were all really young. You know, it's one of those it's one of those jobs where, and you know, you it takes a lot of energy, and so it's mostly young people. And I think sometimes they miss the nuances of things. You know, like what's what's the impact on family caregivers or. Uh, it's just all the budget, the budget, the budget, the budget, and how much is this going to cost? And we just were very proud of ourselves for being so green eye shade and like, and um, I think, you know, I can sort of see now that I'm older Mm -hmm. that everything is just a lot more complicated and nuanced than I realized back then. So you live and you learn. (laughs) I know as, as you get older, you realize the world is really gray. And different shade of grays too, not just one gray. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so fast forward, you know, you have your experience with Avalier Health, and then I'm I'm also curious about your uh, not for profit, the daughter, the daughterhood, uh, and why. Yeah. I guess I guess uh, I want to. I think there's a lot of uh, interest now in you, in what you're doing now in the aging population, and yes. why yes. that, and uh, can that. And you can tell us about that. Yeah, sure, sure. So, um, I, you know, I would, I since I, I think a lot of entrepreneurs listen to your uh, to this podcast, I would just say, you know, um, I think almost every entrepreneur has this moment. And I would put myself in that bucket for a minute. It's I'm not a tech entrepreneur, but you know, but I that moment where you kind of step off the cliff. <laughs> And, um, and for me, that kind of off the moment was after I'd been in a a consultant for 14 years, working at Avalier, doing, you know, working with companies and helping them understand government regulations and policy. And just, uh, you know, I don't know how to express this except to say I was a deep subject matter expert in the Medicare programs and the Medicaid programs, the principal of paper health and long-term care and, you know, hospitals and physician groups and Medicare Advantage plans and insurance and all of that. Um, but I realized, I just had, I just realized I didn't really understand it as well as I thought I did because all of a sudden, all my friends and family and neighbors and, you know, coming to me and asking me for advice or help. 
because I was getting to be that age. <laughs> and, you know, I just didn't really understand, you know, how the policy and even the business operations were translating down to the experience of the patient and the caregiver. Like, I just was shocked. Like, I just, I had a mental model of how I thought the healthcare system worked for older adults. And as soon as people started telling me their stories, and this just started with, you know, a neighbor and a friend, it wasn't any formal thing. I was so shocked because I was just like, I, my mental model doesn't hold up. This isn't how it works. It's, and especially the thing that, that I, the sort of searing insight was that, you know, I just thought because we have this Medicare program, Medicare is a health insurance program for older adults. I thought like, that's enough. That's good, right? It's good. We, everybody who is over age 65 has health care, but that's, that's not true. It's not true. That, you know, there's there's tons and tons of gaps in the program and it doesn't work well. People aren't getting good care from this program and families are having to set up entire systems of care delivery in their individual homes all by themselves just to navigate the health care and the aging infrastructure, no, there's no aging infrastructure. So like, do you need meals? Do you need transportation? Do you need in-home support services? Do you need grab bars? None of that's organized on any kind of platform at all. And so, and then you also have the medical care, which is also not organized at all, and also very poorly reimbursed <laughs> so that it's, so I thought, oh, if you have money and you have Medicare, you're fine. And what I learned, and that's crazy for me to hear. I, I'm embarrassed, but that's just what I thought. And then I, and then I realized, no, not fine. <laughs> so anyway, this was this moment where I decided I was really ready. I've been at this company 14 years. It was time to... I just wanted to do my own research. I just, I wanted to kind of bet on myself. So I, so I, so I left without another job and I took on some independent consulting projects that were enough to help me pay my bills and set aside time to do what I call my field work. So daughterhood became like this ethnographic or anthropological um, endeavor that has uh, actually no business model around it at all. It's not even a nonprofit. Like I haven't even set up a 501c3. I'm on the board of 501c3s and I, I look at what they do and I think that's still a business model and it's, it's not going to work for what we're trying to do. So, so we have just, so Daughterhood kind of sits inside the research firm 
that has grown up around all of these insights and information and knowledge that come from this caregiver community so that, you know, we're able to pursue research projects and funding and whether it's commercial for-profit or philanthropic or whatever, we have a very wide range at ATI. Um, And I can talk more about that, but all of it really has the daughterhood community as its foundation. So, and that's a community of people, you know, eventually I just started putting out content and, you know, eventually meeting all of these people who would read the content and wanted to be part of it. And now we have these like little micro communities all over the country called daughterhood circles and an amazing group of women who lead those and are in community with each other. And so we just try really hard, you know, to, to kind of serve as that aggregator at the market level, helping people navigate peer to peer. It's just a peer to peer. It's just, you know, people call there, you become part of a community, you call people, they help you. <laughs> That's what it is. Peer is closest to the village model, the village movement. Um, but um, there's no, there's no fee or anything. So, um, so anyway, so that, so daughterhood started that way. And then, um, you know, it's grown and it's, it's become less about content and more about community, which I love uh, because producing content's really hard. <laughs> and then, um, and then meanwhile, my research that was just me, independent consultant, has grown to be up a lot. So we have 25 employees now um, and really just there's a lot of interest in the market about sort of, oh my gosh, all of these people are getting older and we're not really ready to deliver care the way they need it. So we have lots of projects. So going back to what you're saying on the daughterhood, like about, you know, caring for the aging and it's becoming a community. And I think oftentimes um, that's what was available way back. And now with the technology, everything is, you know, everybody become more individualistic, everybody moves and that community has disappeared. So is there a way for like, you know, a tech innovation that can help scale so that people can benefit from. Oh, this is me. This is me sighing. Yes. But we're in a little bit of a chicken and an egg problem, which is like, we're having trouble solving. So we really need, there's lots of room for innovation, especially technology, uh, enable innovation to sort of support communities of caregivers. So, you know, so we can have the best of all worlds, you know, we can have a really efficient uh, sort of platform and a t- you know and, and 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 sort of sifting of services and care navigation that absolutely we need a lot that technology has to absolutely be the underpinning of all of it and 
and sort of that that human connection and peer-to-peer all enabled by the technology. Without question, that's where we have to go. Um, the challenge, which I'm sure you've thought about as well, is that um, it's hard to scale because we don't have like a home for that. In other words, we don't have any kind of organizational structure around which we may have these little daughterhood circles. Sure, you know, technology and innovation could help us, I'm sure, like do what we do better. But what you really need (laughs) is every community needs to have like a well-known sort of distribution center, (laughs) you know, for all of the services and all of the technology and all of the innovation and, and that in and of itself has to be technology able. I mean, we all, we need a genius bar in every community for, for caregiving. And I think um, that piece of it can't really be innovated because, you know, it's, it's a shared service. It's a, it's a community service. So, you know, if every, for example, if every Medicare Advantage plan, there's 3,000 or more of them out there, if every single one of them could theoretically create one of these things, but then there would be, that would not solve the problem. Then we'd be like, well, which one do you go to? And how do you choose that? And it's still going to be confusing. So we talk about the need for hubs. You know, we need an sort of infrastructure in underlying systems that across which all of these innovations can travel. Um, I sometimes I'll refer to it as like an aggregation platform. We need an aggregation, but you know, so maybe one of the tech entrepreneurs says, great, I can invent an aggregation platform. That's not hard, you know, but in order for it to work, you have to have scale in order to have scale. You have to have a way to catch, bring everybody to just you. So uh, nobody wants to invest in that. So, so it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a little bit of a conundrum, but I think that we can fix it. If we bring together sort of government dollars, philanthropic dollars and private sector dollars, I think we can create a pool of funding that can fund sort of the underlying infrastructure and then, you know, every family knows like, oh, you know, this is where you go. This is the place you go. And it might not be super efficient or awesome because it's like not private sector, but it's like it serves its purpose because then people can access all of these other sort of innovations. Um, so anyway, I hope that makes sense. It's but do you think in a company like Papa, uh-huh. is that what they're attempt? Mm-mm. is providing a lot of that caregiving and bringing a lot of different resources for the aging population. So th- what they do is great. Um, and, but they're, and I, 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 you know, I don't pretend to be an expert on what they're doing. So just from my vantage point, from what I can see, um, 
they're distributing their solution through Medicare Advantage plans. Medicare Advantage plans only serve half of the older adult population, first of all. Second of all, only a pretty small percentage of those plans are offering PAPA. So I think as a business model, they are highly successful. Like they're, they're a unicorn in the sense of like, I've not seen anybody else break through and get as much sort of buy-in from the Medicare Advantage plans as they have. And so that's fantastic. Um, those Medicare Advantage plans have a very, very small amount of money that they can devote to this. So, you know, I think, is it a me? I don't know how meaningful the benefit is. You know, we don't have a ton of information about that yet. But so I think for the entrepreneur, it probably works. I think as a societal solution, it's not, that's not, you know, if, you know, if we could create a PAPA, like, you know, uh, like an Apple store, like a Papa store in every community and everybody was willing to come in and buy services from, you know, and everybody understood like, this is where you go. Like then that would work. That would be great. And I'd be happy for them to do it. I just think like, you know, um, as long as we have competition, you have the Papa and you have somebody else like them and you have somebody else like them and you have somebody else like them, you still have the same problem, which is like the caregivers, like, where do I even go? Like, Let's say you're a member of a Medicare Advantage plan that has a PAPA benefit. How do you even know? You're still like up late at night Googling, what do I do? You know, so it's it's not necessarily solving the problem of like, where do I go right off the bat for most people. But but I I'm thrilled. It's wonderful progress that Medicare Advantage plans are offering it and that they've been able to sell it. It's like great. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering, I was like in, you know, it, you're in Europe there, there's universal healthcare and how, how do they approach it? How, is there the way they do it can work for where we are for taking care of for taking care of the aging population um, in, because in Europe, everybody was saying that, oh, you know, we care for our aging population better than here in the U.S. And I, you know, I grew up in Indonesia where we take care of aging is the family take care of yes. the yeah. parents. Yeah. And there's a lot of support because we can afford it. The labor cost was lower. There's, you know, yeah. I remember when my yeah. grandfather was old, we always have somebody with him all the time, like, you know, personal caregiver. Yep. Same thing with my grandmother, like, you know, and they're going to go everywhere they need to be because there's a driver that takes them everywhere they want to be. Yep. So yes, every other country does it better than we do. <laughs> and there's, there's a couple reasons why. One is that they actually have financing for services. So that's the other thing that we don't have. We don't actually have any financing for, like, there's no... Um, most people can't afford a personal care aid in this country because there's, there's no, you know, they're paying for it out of their savings. So, you know, um, Germany, most European countries, they have, they have a social insurance system that pays for 
the services that somebody needs when they become very frail and older and older adult. So that's really one really important, huge gap in the United States. Um, so, you know, Medicare doesn't pay for it. Medicaid doesn't like that kind of thing. Like when you're frail and you can't get out of bed or bathe or eat or dress yourself and somebody has to be with you all the time, the only people really available to do that are family members. That's it. So in our society is not organized, you know, to support for, for lots of caregiving. It's the opposite. Um, and so, and then the other thing um, is that a lot of other countries are a lot smarter about, um, although, I mean, well, my understanding is that they are smarter about about allowing a much more fluid immigrant population to flow across borders to be part of that workforce. Um, so I think, I suspect, you know, we are going to be in a fierce competition with other countries for workforce, caregiving workforce that comes from other countries within just a matter of years. We're going to be like begging people to come from other countries to be a caregivers. But we're right now politically just in this really weird place um, where that's not allowed. So, um, or it's hard, I should say. So I think, you know, between immigration policy and so it's just a much more sort of social, there's just a lot more sort of social cohesion, social insurance, um, support for families, recognition of the role of immigrants in the caring workforce, all of that in other countries. Um, and investment, just investment, like in Japan, like there's lots of investment going on right now in housing, even. Mm-hmm. We're not doing that. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm just thinking now about like, okay, so somebody's interested in, you know, there's a lot of needs here what is the opportunity for innovation that you can, I mean, I could say it's a lot, but it's just like, where should we even begin? Yeah. Well, I think, um, I think there's a lot of opportunities for innovation. I mean, I, I do think um, that the, you know, I think we need innovation around, um, you know, how we organize our homes, what kinds of homes we live in, um, how we attach those homes to services, how we how we schedule and coordinate and organize services. I mean, I think there's I think there's kind of an endless array of of innovations that we could bring to this space. Um, but here's I think we have to just do it a little bit differently, which is that. I think the challenge for entrepreneurs and innovators in in aging and healthcare is that you you can't. It's not like it's not like you know another sector where you just kind of go off and you come up with something new. And you might have a few government re- regulations, or you know your Uber, your Airbnb. You have to figure out how to deal with local housing boards and taxi boards, and that's still a thing. But in our world. I would I make the argument that the the 
that the that the innovators and their funders and their incubators and all of that have to actually view the policy landscape as part of what they're doing. The innovation of service delivery or the innovation of, you know, communication or, you know, the wearables or whatever it is that, you know, you've, that you're bringing some cool new technology to has to sort of, you have to almost invent from the the very first moment, co-invent the, the, the technology or whatever with the policy, with whatever that public program, like what is the conversation that we as sort of West Coast innovators are having with those East Coast policy people? Not enough, like not enough. Because, you know, I think, there's not a Republican or a Democrat on the Hill who wouldn't be excited about the idea of like, oh, I see. If we create a social insurance program, we're creating a a flow of revenue into all of these small businesses. You know, like we're mm-hmm. we're, we're we're funding enterprise. You know, we're we're funding. You know, the thing that you're inventing to you know help somebody. Uh, avoid a fall ends up being something that takes us to the moon. I mean, this is what makes the country great (laughs) or good or something. And I think it's like, we can't, you can't innovate in longevity without really thinking about that programmatic space Mm -hmm. that you're, you're having to interact with. And that's, Sometimes being, yeah, and sometimes being the innovator, entrepreneur, things move fast. And then the idea of working with the people in the policy, I know, so So painful to deal with. And how do you break that? Because entrepreneur, probably that's why they're entrepreneur. They're not in politics because they have no patience for that. Yep. So think about what can be paid for today with the programs, like innovate and move quickly around the things that we know we can pay for. (laughs) <laughs> or that are approved or covered, or you can like, you know, um, I mean, Papa's a great, not to pick on them, but that's a great example. I mean, that they were right there, right? Mm-hmm. They were watching. So they knew. So what happens is I have these entrepreneurs that come to me. They're like, wait, what's Medicare Advantage? Is I, should I be looking at that? Is that a thing? I was over here making my thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Papa folks were like, oh, look. Look at what Congress just did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Congress just created a whole new category. Mm-hmm. We're going to make this thing that fits. Mm-hmm. So, you know, having some knowledge of policy and programs in the world of that, you can still move quickly within the confines. And then what would be awesome is if the Papa folks, and they're doing this, you know, Go to Capitol Hill and say, like, look what we're doing. Imagine how much more we could do if, you know, this is this is where this is as far as we can go because of what of and then you know come together it, with other entrepreneurs and make a point, you know. So because nobody 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 knows about Papa on Capitol Hill. Mm, yeah. Okay. I mean, some, a few do, but not really very many. Yeah. 
<laughs> so we're picking on them. They're like, why are you guys talking about us so much? <laughs> so yeah, no, this is great. Well, I'm so short of time, but um, I feel like there's a lot of things that we can talk about. Last question then is that, I think you provide the insight uh, or advice for the entrepreneurs, understanding the policy. And I think policies can be written in a, such a dry language. And how do you? Oh, there's so many resources, really, really. Like, you know, um, <laughs> that's the thing. There's so many ATI advisories out there putting things on their websites, you know, um, like, don't start, like, remember how I said earlier, like, you start with the source and you educate yourself. Like, you don't have to do that if you're an entrepreneur. <laughs> like, that's just what you have to do if you're a staffer. I think, you know, um, Kaiser Health News is a wonderful resource. The Kaiser Family Foundation, they're just, um, just you know, and I, I, I don't have a, like, it's it, something fun to think about would be, like, coming up with a recommended reading list for entrepreneurs in longevity. I, sh- I think I will do that and I can share it with you be- because I have I have to think about it a little bit. But like, where can you go? AARP's Public Policy Institute. It's a ton of great resources. You just start to kind of, oh, I this is a really, really good one. The Medicare uh, Payment Advisory Commission, which is called MedPAC. And they have all of these payment basics, you know. So you're just beginning to get, you can begin to get your... You know, you don't have to be an expert, but just being aware of what um, of what some of the limitations of these programs are. And then in, find co-founders who know, <laughs> not me, but find co-founders who know the space um, as well, I think. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much sure. for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.